Hi, everybody. Comics Guys continue in their explanation of history of DC Comics. Explain this. So I'm Steve Tasker. I'm here with Darren Watts. Hello. And where we left off last week was with the birth of the probably most famous comic character of all time, Superman. And this time we're going to be starting with the birth of probably the only character who could rival that title. Sure. So to, you know, catch up with where we left off, we were talking about how, you know, the the company that uh, was DC Comics at this time was, uh, shall we say, heavily influenced uh, by the mob and was, uh, had, you know, found an astounding level of success with Superman, the character. This character, obviously, you know, comic book industry being what it is, very quickly a whole bunch of other publishers who were doing comic books saw what DCI was doing and said, holy cow, we need a piece of that. Uh, we need, a, you know, characters. And so Superman ripoffs began to appear right and left across comics. DC, of course, since Donenfeld knew and was friendly with and, shall we say, had in his pocket multiple judges in the New York you know, judicial system, thanks to his Tammany buddies there, was very quick to be litigious about this sort of thing and filed suits against a bunch of different publishers who tried to rip off Superman in those early months, including both Fawcett with their character called Master Man and Fox Feature Syndicate with their character called Wonder Man, both of which were, you know, shut down by DC and their lawyers very quickly. Meanwhile, of course, they are still putting out three other comics every month. And as action continues to kind of ratchet past the other ones in sales up, you know, up, up the ladder there, they're like, well, you know, this is ridiculous. We need more superheroes. We need more guys like Superman to sell comics. Their first try at doing that had been in Detective Comics in October of 1938, just a few months after Superman, where they created a character called the Crimson Avenger in Detective Comics. Crimson Avenger was done by a guy named Jim Chambers, did both the story and the art, and it was effectively a complete ripoff of the Green Hornet, who'd been a masked hero character on the radio for years at that point. In that, you know, he's got a mask and a slouch hat, uh, you know, is driven around in a car by his Asian-American sidekick and uses his, you know, kind of like martial arts and general, like, sneakiness to be, uh, you know, to solve crimes. It's, you know, almost kind of like embarrassingly close to the Green Hornet and was not a successful hit as a character. Oh, of course. That was Absolutely. pretty common during this time, right? There was nobody stopping Total you from ever doing comments. it. The only question was, would the person you were ripping off care enough to sue you? Right? That's literally the only punishment that you could get for doing a ripoff character. Right? So, you know, the DC kind of surprised people. You know, DCI right. National at that point surprised people with how litigious they were. Because, you know, they were floating in cash and realized, you know, like what a big deal Superman was to them. Ripping off Superman, they were much more than anybody willing to kind of like go to mattresses to fight about that sort of thing. Whereas most publishers, most, you know, radio shows, other sources of this kind of IP could get ripped off all day long. And it was just not worth anybody's time to care. Right. So in March of 39, now four or five months after that, after Crimson Avenger came along, they put out their next kind of like major new character. Detective Comics number 27 in March 39 features Batman by Bob Kane as the primary artist and writer with the assistance of a guy named Bill Finger, who did not get credit early on creating the character. 
the first appearance of Batman is a eight-page story in Detective Comics in which we have this Commissioner Gordon, you know, talking to layabout social, you know, playboy Bruce Wayne about the difficulties he's having fighting crime in Gotham City. And then, you know, panels later, Batman is out on the street investigating a series of murders. And it is fun, the Batman character that you know and love, except for he's carrying a gun, which is a bit of a surprise if you're familiar with the character Ron. Over the course of the eight-page story, he, you know, solves a, uh, solves a series of murders and winds up in a uh, chemical factory with the main bad guy who leaps at him in the next-to-last panel. Batman ducks, and the guy flies into a vat of acid. Batman, of course, does not exactly exert himself to try to save this guy, but instead just responds, a fitting end for his kind. And then in the next panel, we see, you know, Commissioner Gordon and Bruce Wayne chatting again where Gordon is talking about this mysterious vigilante who, uh, you know, has saved the day and solved crime. And Bruce Wayne's response is like, it's not interesting. Well, hmm, how about that? And so... And this is where we get all of those hot takes from people about how Batman <laughs> was so much better when For he had a gun. For people who aren't used to the idea, you know, that the Batman hates guns and everything, none of that had, of course, been added to the character yet. In fact, there was very little to the character at all, right. except except for his look, which, you know, came primarily from Kane and Finger. But once again, though, this character struck a chord, right? This character was very popular very early on. And, you know, within a few months, Detective was now selling tremendously well. As, you know, we, we learned Batman's origin, you know, which didn't happen for several months afterwards before we learned how Bruce Wayne had become Batman in the first place, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know... This was was a was a new industry, right? Now DC was in the superhero business, right? We had two very successful, very popular characters who were expanding beyond just the comic books in their in their popularity, in their reach. People were, you know, like learning about them. DC kept trying over and over again to hit that, you know, gold mine, that that vein with a bunch of other characters. And of course, with, you know, kind of diminishing results as much as we may love these characters that they created, they none of them approached the popularity that Superman and Batman had. The next one to come along is in Adventure Comics, uh, which did not have its own superhero lead for it. In the summer of 1939, they create Sandman, the one with the gas mask and the suit and everything. Uh, you know, would put everybody to sleep, solve crimes. Meanwhile, of course, all of these other publishers, once, once Batman is out, right, DC's ability to go after anybody about the idea of a superhero is kind of wiped out, right? Their legal standing to say, we own the idea of a superhero because we created Superman. Your character is too close to Superman. Well, no, the only characters that like would have that kind of legal standing that, that to be concerned about had to do everything like Superman, right? They had to have a cape, they had to fly, they had to be super strong and super fast, et cetera. If your superhero did something else, well, then your defense was, well, you guys also have Batman, right? Like, and it's, you know, that our, our guy is not any closer to Superman than Batman is. So that was, became kind of like a, a legal defense to put out new superheroes, as long as your superheroes were sufficiently different from Superman. And so quality comics came into being. Fox feature comics came into being. Fawcett comics with Captain Marvel came into being. Timely. I mean, all of these companies kind of like burst onto the scene in 1939 with their own superhero characters. And superheroes are suddenly an enormous fad. Suddenly this is the thing that like, you know, kids are, are doing, kids are consuming, buying vast numbers of them and their parents are talking about it, right? It's, a, it's in the pop zeitgeist. It's in the, it's in the heads of everybody. 
And so by the time you turn over into 1940, DC National is, you know, has, has these two smash characters. Now you've got the other company that Donenfeld and Leibowitz owned, that Leibowitz was a partner in with Max Gaines, which was, which was All-American, right? That's a different company from this. And All-American decides, well, you know, which we're, we also should have some superheroes from this, right? We should also get into this business. And so by January of 1940, they have hired Gardner Fox as a writer. And Gardner Fox comes on staff full-time for All-American. He's not working in a different studio. He's not, you know, selling stuff to a bunch of different publishers at once. He was selling stuff. He was writing uh, pulp science fiction novels at the time, but his comic book output was done just for All-American. And the very first thing he does for them is Flash Comics number one. And Flash Comics number one introduces not only Flash, as a character, the Jay Garrick with the, you know, the hat, uh, the Mercury hat and the lightning bolt on his chest and everything uh, as the world's fastest man done with Harry Lampert doing the art. But also in the same issue, Fox also creates Hawkman with Dennis Neville, as the, you know, the, the archaeologist who uh, discovers the mysterious ninth metal belt and the wing set and everything. This one flies around and solves crimes. And in the same Is that how that's pronounced? I've ninth never metal, heard it actually yes. said. Ninth that's metal. what it was. Well, that's that's what they I've call it today, right? Because they don't understand where the number came. But in the in the golden age, it's called ninth metal. The other character okay. who appears for the first time in Flash One is not written by Gardner Fox. It's written by a guy named John Wentworth with art by a guy named Stan Ashmeyer, and that's Johnny Thunder. And Johnny Thunder basically is the first comedy superhero, right? It's the first character making fun of all of this. You know, it's now been a year and a half that Superman's been out for this, and like the the concept of the superhero has permeated culture to the point where you can tell jokes about superheroes and people will get them and understand them, right? Johnny Thunder is an idiot. That's part of the point of the character. He has inherited from his relatives or whatever control of a genie, a magical pink lightning bolt genie, which will do whatever he says, except he can never remember what magic word it is that actually summons him. The orders that he gives the genie always get taken the wrong way. And poor Johnny can't hold a job and he can't hold a girlfriend and all of this terrible stuff is happening, you know, to him. But every so often when, you know, by accident, he remembers how to call up his magical genie, then he can also, you know, solve some crimes or whatever. Flash Comics is, once again, not a Superman, Batman, not an action or detective level hit, but it's a hit. It's a success, definitely, and is, you know, definitely keeps All-American going quite well. Over in at DCI, right around when Flash number one comes out, Bill Finger, who's doing most of the scripting for Batman at this point, realized that Batman kind of has a problem. And his problem is, problem is, he's the world's greatest detective. He's super smart and he's always solving crimes and everything, but he's doing this all by himself. And while Superman can kind of talk to himself and talk to the bad guys and tell jokes and that kind of thing, and it's really obvious what he's doing that's super heroic, when Batman figures something out, it's not as visual. It's not as interesting. Batman needs somebody to talk to, to tell him how brilliant he is, right? The same way that Sherlock Holmes does. He needs a sidekick who can say, by gosh, Holmes, that's amazing. By gosh, Batman, I can't believe that you figured that out. So that he has somebody to actually explain the plot to. And so Finger creates with, the, you know, Kane uh, doing some of the drawing and Jerry Robinson also contributing, creates Robin creates the first teen sidekick, the first boy hero who will hang around 
you know, palling around with the adult's character. And Robin, of course, has the tragic background. His parents are in the circus and they are killed by a mobster. And Batman takes the, you know, sobbing orphan in and promises to teach him all of the skills of crime fighting so that he can, in fact, bring his parents' killer to justice, which he does at the end of the story in Detective Number 38, basically. And because Batman never caught the guy who killed his parents, but Robin did catch the guy who killed his parents. Robin winds up growing up, winds up being a much happier character. He's much more kind of like stable and put together mentally. And so he can tell jokes. He's brightly colored and he can, you know, lighten up Batman when he needs to. And he's always there for Batman to explain something. This will, of course, lead to one zillion more ripoffs of that idea. Basically, every superhero created after Batman in the Golden Age has a teenage sidekick. and in order to kind of understand the appeal of that, I think you need to understand culturally what's going on here at this point, right? We're, the, the world is at war. There's an awful lot of 8, 10, 12-year-old kids who are buying comics whose dads are gone, whose older brothers are gone, right? They've, they're, they've left. They've, they've gone off to fight, you know, Hitler. They've gone off to the Pacific or whatever. They've all, you know, they're, they're not there. And so you have an entire generation of kids missing an adult figure in their lives. Right. And so the fantasy of being Robin is not just the fantasy of like, oh, I'm a competent, you know, superhero. I'm solving crimes and telling jokes and everything. But my father figure is right here alongside me doing all of this stuff. Right. And I think that gets left out when people kind of try to understand why were there so many kids sidekick heroes? Well, it's because it was a fantasy fulfillment for eight to 12 year old boys whose were missing either their fathers, their uncles, their you know older brothers, whatever it was, because they had gone off to war. Right, dreaming of being Batman's a little bit too far, but dreaming of being it's yeah, it's hard to it's hard to imagine yourself as a grown right, you know, kind of thing. But being the kid sidekick, that was a thing they could get their heads around. So around that same month that we're still in the spring of 1940, DC decides, well, Batman is sold well enough, you know, that Superman is at that point carrying two different titles, right? He's got action and Superman. Batman has just been in detective. It's time to give Batman his own title too. And once again, Bob Kane, who was, you know, listed as the creator, he's the, the primary guy in that first story whose signature was on every piece, was clearly no longer capable of doing, of keeping up with the art, right? Like of the, of the demands of putting out multiple Batman stories every month. And so Bill Finger was doing a lot of the scripting and Jerry Robinson was doing a lot of the art. And so that Batman number one is an astounding comic book when you actually take a look at it, because not only does it have Batman's origin retold in it, but it's also in within that comic, the first appearances of both the Joker and Catwoman are both created as bad guys in that single issue by Finger and Robinson. And, you know, so that's a that's a title that kind of like changed the course of Batman right there, the introduction of those kind of fascinating, you know, villains that were that were worthwhile, that were worth kind of paying attention to. That's probably the most premieres, most famous premieres all in one comic. Right. Well, like I said, you had Flash number one early on, which had Flash, Hawkman and John. Right. But, you know, Catwoman and Joker same same shot out of the box that's a that's a heck of a job you had a good month there yeah. all american now is in the superhero business just like dci is right so they start putting out new more new comics more new characters all american comics itself they create green lantern in the summer of 1940 and by marty nodell with bill finger again doing some of the work and this is a thing to point out there was a lot of creative people working for both national dci and All-American at that point. Bill Finger was one of them who wrote for both of them because he worked from home. He had a studio and he would just sell scripts 
to either side, right? He he didn't care. It didn't make any difference. It's not like there was a a rivalry between these companies. In fact, you know, as we'll see, they actually get along really well because their ownership is pretty much the same. So Green Lantern gets created in 1940. This is the you know the the blonde-haired Alan Scott version with his you know magical ring. That basically, in the first couple of stories, the only thing the ring does is control metal, right? That's the main power that it has. However, Green Lantern gets written by a bunch of different people, and they can't really keep track of that. And the ring just gets more and more powerful as each story goes. The only thing they remember about the character is, oh, he's got a weakness to wood. His powers don't affect wood. Well, no, it didn't affect anything but metal in the first couple of stories. So you could hit him with a club and that would take him out. But eventually the ring gets incredibly powerful, but still keeps the it doesn't work on wood, you know, feature, even though they've long since forgotten what the original point of the of the superpower was. I've always wondered why he has a weakness to wood, because it seems so yeah. so awkward. Because it's not metal, because it's originally it was supposed to be metal. Well, so in the fall of 1940, we introduced the Atom, who is basically, you know, like only his own entire shtick is that he's a very short guy who's a bodybuilder and is, you know, strong and a good fighter or whatever, and is, you know, stands five foot two or whatever. That's basically his personality at that point. So the original Atom uh, couldn't uh, couldn't shape change. Nope, no, oh, wow. he, had, he had no powers at all. He becomes super strong later on. He actually gets like bumped up to like super strong, but at first he's just a mystery man. He's just a tough guy. Huh. Do you know when he? develops sudden shrinking powers not well he never does the golden age oh, adam okay. never does it's the silver age adam who can shrink right that and sense. silver age adam when he learned when he the shrinking power the first character who can shrink is actually doll man by quality oh wow and so the the silver age adam the ray palmer adam owes way more to doll man as a character than he does to the guy whose name he right the only thing he took from the golden age adam was the name and the name was just like the nickname for a guy who was really strong, kind of short Right. That was the gag. He was called the Adam because he was short. Gotcha. You know, not because he could shrink or anything. So at this point now, it's 1940 and both DCI and DCI National and All-American are putting out this kind of like range of comics and they've got a bunch of different superheroes. And then there's Superman and Batman kind of above it all. Right. Superman and Batman are making money and are kind of like considered by DCI to be almost being in a separate business from all of the smaller ones, you know, that were kind of like behind them, the other titles, right? Like the other titles were just comic books. Superman and Batman were an industry, right? They're selling t-shirts, they're selling, they're on the radio, they're making movies, they're doing all this stuff. Serials are starting to come out, that kind of thing. Superman, they have just signed the deal to do the animated series with uh, the Fleischer cartoons for this that will actually show in movie theaters and everything. So they, DCI kind of keeps Superman and Batman separate from everything else they were doing. And so they decide, Jack Leibowitz basically, who was the guy who was a partner in both companies says, we should do a comic that will be an introduction to all of these other characters, right? What we're gonna do is basically do an anthology comic and it will have short stories starring each of our superheroes who are in other comics. And this comic will be the comic that introduces you to all the other stuff. Right. It will be the it'll be the on point for new readers. And so we need a comic that's going to have it's going to be a big oversized comic and it's going to have eight stories in it. Right. That will be it will start eight different characters. And each of those characters will be somebody who is in another one of our comics. Uh, and they're going to call this all star comics. So in order to get like the eight characters of this, basically, they decided to do this as a as a cooperation between National and All-American. Each side would contribute four characters to this comic. 
And so All Star says, okay, we will do this. We, you can uh, do a story that has Flash, Green Lantern, Hawkman, and Adam. Those are our big four characters who aren't Superman and Batman. And National says, okay, you can have our best, you know, not Superman and Batman characters. That'll be Sandman, Dr. Fate, the Spectre, which was also being done by Siegel and Schuster at this point, and Our Man. And these are, you know, the last two or three of those are pretty much, you know, brand new characters who have just been introduced. And they aren't selling that great yet. They're good characters. They're interesting. They have fans. But they're not really kind of, you know, racking up the numbers that some of the others are. So they decide to do all-star comics, which will feature one story each about all eight of those characters. And that sells pretty well. That does okay. So that's the summer of 1940. That first one comes out. By the winter of 1940 they decide to do a thing that will change comic book history forever. And this is Gardner Fox, kind of is the guy who comes up with this idea, who says, you know what? Instead of just doing eight separate unrelated stories, we're going to do a framing sequence that shows that all of these superheroes are in the same world. They're all friends with each other. They're getting together to have a dinner that will be, that is like the secret society of superheroes. In fact, we'll call it the Justice Society. And they are getting together to have a meal and to tell the swap stories. And so that will be the excuse for each of the eight individual stories will be each person tell the most interesting thing that happened to them last week. And then we'll just have kind of a, you know, like two or three panels in between each story that tell the story of them getting together and having this meeting and, you know, having a dinner, basically. And then the framing story goes a little farther because it actually includes Johnny Thunder also. And Johnny Thunder basically is annoyed that all of the other superheroes are having a meeting and he wasn't invited. So he gets his Thunderbolt to use its magic to find out where and when the meeting is and uses it to sneak in. And of course, he screws up and destroys their dinner. But then he magically fixes it and convinces everybody to tell their individual story. That framing story is the first time anywhere in comics that one superhero met another superhero. Right? Like they're in the same story. They're in the same world. They all, they, they could know each other. They could be friends or what. And that's the first. An idea that is proven to have no monetary significance. Right, exactly. Terrible for uh, movies. Yeah, this one. This one. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But I mean, it's a huge story. And then at the end of the story, as if this weren't exciting enough, if you're a nine-year-old fanboy in 1940 and this has just happened and you have just seen all of your favorite superheroes meet each other. Here's the exciting part. The very last panel is a guy from the FBI shows up and says, uh, you know, I need the Justice Society to like go, you know, deal with this criminal situation for this. And the Justice Society are all like, absolutely, sir. Yes, we can't. We love the FBI. Uh, you know, we'll be happy to, you know, go out and serve our country. And so number four is the first time they all work together on a case, right? Like you've gone from like these eight completely unrelated stories to now, they're still going to be separate. There's still going to be eight different stories in it, but the eight stories will all have the same purpose, right? They'll all be aspects of the heroes working on their own to solve like a big group situation, right? And that will basically be the story, the way that All-Star works for the rest of World War II uh, is that somebody comes at the beginning of the story, at the beginning of the comic, tells them about this sort of crisis. And then, of course, they all have to split up and solve the problem on their own because each of their individual stories are being written by different writers who are not talking to each other. You know, they would just get like some information. Hey, I need a story in which this character does this or whatever. And so each eight page story, uh, you know, is done completely differently from the others. 
for it, but they would all have some topic, some plot thing in common uh, that would, you know, like carry the story forward. And so Justice Society basically is the first team comic, the first shared universe comic. It kind of, you know, it creates all of this. Um, it's Timely should get a lot of credit for it because Timely right around the same time is having Human Torch fight Submariner. Right, and that is much more of a story in which the characters are interrelated. And characters are actually, uh, you know, not just sharing a universe, but are interacting with each other on a level that's different from we're sitting around dinner having a having a conversation. Right, that's the the Human Torch Submariner conflict is in fact an actual fight between two superheroes, which is you know, kind of takes it up even another higher level. But uh, Justice Society kind of, uh, you know creates the idea of the I'm sure world. I'm sure we'll talk about that timely fight uh, when we do history. Oh, of course. Oh, we'll do a whole history of Marvel, and that'll be a big event in it. Yeah. So All-Star continues to sail along. Now, now, now we've got a third comic shared by both of these publishers uh, that is selling really strongly. It's almost as good as Superman and Batman, right? So that's this kind of this idea for it. So for several years, months and years afterwards, they would use All-Star as the place to introduce new characters, introduce new ideas, and then spin them off into their own comics. And that's what happens in January of 1942 with Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman is, in fact, you know, creative is sold to All-American by William Moulton Marston, who was the writer who created uh, Wonder Woman with uh, Harry Peter as the artist and with Max Gaines, who was teaching Marston how to write a comic book. Those first few scripts have a lot of gains in them because Marston wasn't really a professional writer. He didn't know how to make a script. And it was Gaines' son, William, who actually did the sales deal. He's the one Marston actually reached out to, made contact with him, and William brought Marston to All-American. William's 19 at the time. But he was, you know, like working in the office, basically, and kind of made the deal to bring Wonder Woman to him. So, you know, for being a 19-year-old, that's a pretty good day's work of, you know... I signed the Wonder Woman guy. And William, of course, will go on to be much more famous as the guy who creates Mad Magazine. But that's years in the future from this point. So Wonder Woman uh, appears in All-Star for the first time, or this is her first appearance, and then gets spun off into a comic called Sensation Comics, which will not only have Wonder Woman in it, but will also star Wildcat and Mr. Terrific as characters. All-Star is now featuring all of these different characters. And the fans are kind of wondering, well, you know, are Superman and Batman part of the Justice Society too? Shouldn't they? How come they're not in this, right? And part of it was DCI and Carl Donenfeld wanted to not sully the characters, right? Like they didn't want them to be, they, they considered them more important than any of the characters who were appearing in All-Star at the time. And so if you put Superman and Batman in a comic with these other lesser superheroes, it was kind of like they were slumming, right? Like they were, you know, this is, we don't, we don't really, you know, have anything to do with these kind of like lesser comics that only sell hundreds of thousands of issues instead of millions of copies of their issues, right? So that's, you know, we don't, uh, we don't associate with them. But finally, as All-Star continued to kind of like pump up in size and in sales for it, they reached the point where they would have, okay, Superman and Batman can show up. They're not going to be in a story full on, but they'll cameo. You can put them in a panel. Right. You can say, oh, you know, we talked to Superman and Batman and they're doing a thing. Right? They could be referred to. They could appear. They could show up and shake hands with, you know, the FBI guy or whatever, you know, and like be part of the story on that level. But they couldn't really participate in the actual stories because uh, DCI didn't want to, you know, 
didn't want to have that carryover and they didn't want all American uh, to be kind of like making any extra money generated by DC characters beyond the original deal. DCI national at this point also realizes that they have the idea of a super team like this is a really good idea. And they'd like to have one of those that they don't have to share the money with all American for They don't want to have to give gains any part of this. And they have, because they're continuing to pump out new characters all the time in their titles, create new magazines, create new issues. Uh, uh, they decide to create a new team, which will be made up of other characters that they own outright. At this point, Donenfeld has hired an editor by the name of Mort Weisinger. And Mort Weisinger uh, had been a, an agent for pulp writers. He had been an agent for a bunch of science fiction writers. Um, he'd been the agent for Alfred Bester for the guy who wrote Stars My Destination. And his job basically was selling, you know, you would send him, you know, a story or a brief of your fiction story if you didn't live in New York, right? And then he would take it to the New York publishers and try to find a place to actually publish it. And he'd take 10% for doing that. Um, well, he was also a pretty good editor. So he had gone to work for National and in his first few months had co-created along with writers Aquaman, Johnny Quick, Green Arrow, and The Vigilante. In probably six months, he'd made all four of those guys. So he had a pretty, you know, solid run of characters that were going to be well-known, be, uh, you know, be popular and effective. And so left to his own devices, he created a team, a superhero team. They got a comic called Leading Comics, and that would have the second ever superhero team in it, which is called The Seven Soldiers of Victory. And that included all, all the characters, basically, who were edited by Mort Weisinger at that time, except for Aquaman and Johnny Quick, because he didn't want them in the, in the series. It was hard, too hard to put them in a team. So they were kind of like being run in a, down the hall uh, at 480 Lex, at the, at the DCI offices, without Donenfeld or Leibowitz or anybody really having anything to do with it, right? The, the job had gotten too big. There were so many titles being put out that Donenfeld and Leibowitz weren't really that hands-on on what was actually happening. Um, so Weisinger, uh, you know, has this run for a bit, and then he gets drafted. The war has started, and everybody's, you know, like suddenly people are company, people from the company are getting pulled off because these are still mostly young men, right? These are men in their 20s and 30s doing these jobs. So, you know, as the war is starting, they get drafted. So uh, Weisinger winds up leaving D.C. when he's drafted, uh, and is writes scripts for army radio shows for the next few years and won't come back to DC until the war is over. Um, and so leading and all of those characters wind up in the hands of other people. Um, so uh, at this point, like I said, that Superman and Batman are this huge thing off to the side. The Fleischer Superman animated shorts start coming out in 41. Uh, and so you will have you know, as part of, they're like the Warner Brothers cartoon, right? Like that kind of thing where it would be like an eight minute cartoon before they show the feature movie. They would show a newsreel and they would show a couple of other things. They would show these eight minute Superman cartoons. And if you've never seen a Fleischer uh, Superman animated cartoon, rectify that immediately. Most of them are on YouTube. You can watch them and they're absolutely astonishingly good. They're really powerful and really strong um, pieces of animation, pieces of, pieces of art. Um, the first superhero serial, the first superhero actual movie to come out for it uh, is Captain Marvel. Actually, Captain Marvel beats either Superman or Batman to the movies. Um, and the Captain Marvel one does really well. 
for it. And Captain Marvel by 42 or so individually, Captain Marvel is now outselling Superman and Batman because Fawcett has taken off. Now DC is in the middle of their legal fight with Fawcett over the, whether or not Captain Marvel is a ripoff of Superman. We already did an entire episode about that. uh, So go back and check that one out to, to get that full story, but that's happening right now. And Captain Marvel is the only character who rivals Superman and Batman and some months beats him, uh, you know, in sales uh, over the course of the war. Batman gets a serial himself in 1943. And again, if you haven't seen it, watch it. It's hilarious. It's really awful, but it's funny to watch. During the war, scripts are in the hands of, shall we say, less professional writers. They're still selling very well, but not at quite the level that they had hoped. And, uh, you know, some people were kind of like ready to get out of it as the war was going on. Also, it's getting harder and harder to get a hold of paper. It's getting harder and harder to get a hold of ink. The actual production costs of making comics is going up. And at the same time, their physical quality is going down because we can't get good paper. We can't get good color separation. The comics just look terrible. In 1944, Max Gaines is done with All-American, right? He's clearly not going to have a you know huge level success. Wonder Woman is a pretty good character, is a pretty big character, and that's kind of All-American's big cash cow at this point, Flash and Green Lantern, and their share of All-Star is, these are good, they're okay. Uh, But Gaines thinks he's got better ideas. He sees that superheroes are kind of on their way out. And so he borrows some more money. Well, actually, no, he lets Jack Leibowitz buy him out of All-American. Jack, in order to do this, has to borrow a bunch of money from Harry Donenfeld to get this done. Uh, but Jack actually basically pays Gaines for his share of the company. Gaines takes off and leaves to start what will become EC, uh, which is originally EC stood for educational comics because originally Gaines' plan was to do like Bible stories and science and other stuff, you know, like comics actually for kids. But fairly quickly, they changed the name of it to entertaining comics. And the comics that EC will become famous for become things like Crime Does Not Pay and Vault of Blood and all these other you know, horror and, uh, you know, sci-fi and that kind of thing, uh, crime comics. That sort of thing. Uh, but that's what Gaines does. So Jack, now as the full owner of All-American and a partner with Detective, they merge. And Jack immediately kind of like merges the company. So DCI uh, now uh, is part of like this one company that they form out of All-American, uh, DCI, and Independent News, the distributor that they still own, and the printing presses that they still own as part of Independent News, that all becomes a company called National Periodical Publications. And that company, made up of these all these different pieces for it, all, all kind of like squished together under the ownership of Donenfeld and Jack Leibowitz, and under the management of Jack Leibowitz, is the company that we now today know as DC. That is the first time all of this stuff has come together under one place, under one roof. They close the All-American offices. Everybody is working out of the office on Lexington Avenue. And this is where the company is. Now, National Periodical Publications uh, is not a name that most kids know, right? Like there's, at this point, comics still don't have kind of like any sort of, you know, like logo or anything. Um that tells you what company they belong to. There's an indicia on the first page for it, but like the covers would just have the information about the, the comic, the actual like title of the comic and who was in it and that kind of thing. So most people didn't know the name National Periodical. And the 
Superman and Batman ones at this point frequently had a bullet, a sales bullet that they would put on their stuff that they started doing full time in 1946 that would say either DC, standing for Detective Comics, or Superman-DC for Superman and Action Comics. And by this time, he was in a third title, World's Finest, which starred both Superman and Batman. So DC at least became a name that kids saw. And so they called it DC, even though the name of the company, company was National Periodical. So now the war has come to an end. You know, all of these uh, young men basically are coming back from the war. And there's a new, you know, they, they had bought uh, superhero comics had been very popular on military bases and that kind of thing. They had sold very well at PXs and that kind of thing. But as they came home, as these uh, soldiers came home from them, they kind of were putting away that sort of uh, entertainment, right? Like, so they've come home to start families. They're here on the GI Bill. They're getting married. They're having kids of their own. Comics is not really their thing so much anymore. And a new generation of kids had come along. You know? And that generation of kids kind of thought, you know, superheroes are my older brother's thing or my dad's thing or whatever. That's just not uh, the kind of comics that they were interested in. What's cool is Westerns. What's cool is science fiction. What's cool is uh, crime. What's cool is monsters. All of these other different genres uh, were taking the sales spots away from the superhero comics. And slowly over, say, between 1946 and 1950, superhero comics dwindle away to almost nothing. All of these, All-Star becomes a Western title. Flash gets canceled. Green Lantern gets canceled. All of these other characters get canceled or get turned into something else. And it's not just at, at DC. It's also, it's at every publisher, right? It's a, you know, uh, Timely ends as a company. Quality folds as a company. All of these characters, all these uh, comic book publishers go away, basically. The only people, the only characters with enough stamina to make it through this kind of like sales crash that are still selling well enough for DC to keep them going are the big former DCI ones. So you've got Superman, who's still got Superman and Action and World's Finest. You've got Batman, who's got Batman and Detective and World's Finest. Wonder Woman is still strong enough to hold her one title. And then you've got Adventure, which stars Superboy. And once again, when we get to the Siegel and Schuster uh, episode, you, there's a whole different story behind Superboy than the one that you think you know. Uh, for this character, but Superboy, the adventures of Kal-El as a, as a young man, basically growing up in Smallville, was a title featured character started by Joe Schuster doing art. And uh, we'll get to the legal issues over all of that in the Siegel and Schuster one. That's, that will turn out to be a legal nightmare for 50 years. But Superboy was still strong enough as a character that he could hold adventure. And then adventure had these backup features, mostly Aquaman and Green Arrow. Right, so those two characters kind of stayed alive more or less through this period with like almost no comics because they were getting these little six-page backups in the Superboy because they needed a backup feature for. Them. So all of the uh, westerns are huge for these guys. You have uh, all western comics, all-star western, Tomahawk. I mean, DC at this point is still a big enough company that they're still contributing. Characters, I mean, a bunch of serial movies get made starring their non-superhero characters, right? Vigilante gets a movie. Hop Harrigan gets a movie. Congo Bill, the African explorer, he gets a movie. Batman gets one, and Superman gets two in that time stretch. They are down now at that same level 
of character value, basically, that kind of vigilante and those other characters are. Uh, DC is doing sci-fi with strange adventures and mystery in space and that kind of thing. And also doing romance because they're trying to figure out how to get girls to uh, read more comics. And so uh, they're doing, you know, girls love, girls romance, a date with Judy. They're still a huge operational com uh, company. Harry is now ridiculously wealthy, uh, you know, has completely gotten out of the mob business, is completely respectable in New York high society and that sort of thing. He retires in about 1950 and he'll die in 1965. Um, his son, Irwin, uh, who was born in 1926, is born before all of this really took off while his dad was still doing, you know, spicy pulps and stuff, uh, has grown up and become a, an adult and starts working for DC, uh, you know, in the late 40s. Takes a job, you know, in his dad's company, basically. By 1952, he's the editorial director. And by 1958, he's the executive vice president. They also, at this point, have now hired Julie Schwartz. Julie Schwartz used to be Mort Weisinger's business partner in that pulp agency that they had um, and had, uh, you know, worked as an agent for it. And Mort Weisinger basically had gotten him a job at DC uh, at All-American. And so he had worked on most of the sci-fi stuff uh, and, uh, you know, it was working at the company. So the two of them basically are now the heads of DC. Jack Leibowitz is more or less retired. Uh, Carl Donenfeld has completely retired. Gardner Fox is still working for them and everything. And so they, through the 50s, are publishing all of this kind of like non-superhero stuff. And Julie Schwartz creates a title in 1955, and he's going to call it Showcase. And what that's going to do is be a, com a comic that, once again, like the way All-Star was, will be the introduction character. They'll try out characters. Characters will appear for two or three issues. And if they sell well, they'll get their own comics. And if they don't sell, well, too bad. You know, we only wasted two or three issues. Let's hit another one. Let's try it again. And very early in that showcase run, Julie Schwartz, with the assistance of uh, uh, Gardner Fox and Broom and a couple of other, John Broom, of other people, create a new version of The Flash. And this is the Flash that we know and love today. This is the Barry Allen Flash with the full-on cowl, the costume that has been redesigned to look like it's part of the rocket age, right? Like it's slick and it's aerodynamic and it makes sense for a guy moving fast would actually wear something like that instead of the kind of jodipers and hat that, you know, the Flash wore in the 40s that never made any sense. And this character is a scientist because science is cool and science fiction is cool. And his job is he works for the, for the police department doing forensics and that's a cool kind of job to have. And we'll do all of this random weird stuff about science in the stories, right? But we will always have a basically a scientific background for all of the stunts that Barry will pull. And so this character, they introduce him in showcase and give him a shot for this as a, you know, as superheroes haven't really sold in six or eight years, but hey, why not? And by that point, like the world is ready for superheroes again. That character introduces what we'll know as the Silver Age going forward. And so and they've set a precedent basically of this character will be a revamp, a modernization of a character that they did in the 40s. We're gonna make them modern for today. Here in the 1950s and 60s, we're much smarter than we used to be back in the 30s and 40s. And we're gonna make our characters make more sense. And they're gonna be more about science and that kind of thing. Uh, so, you know, with the creation of the Flash, Suddenly, you know, we have begun the Silver Age of comics. 
All right, and I think that's a good place to stop with the coming out of the Golden Age and into the Silver Age. So next time we'll pick up talking about the Silver Age of comics. I've been Stephen Tasker, and this has been Darren Watts. Thank you all very much for coming. Yep, thanks for coming, and we hope to see you next time. Good night.